Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk to another writer. Who? Oh, Jesus. You throw a rock in here, you'll hit one. Do me a favor, Fink. Throw it hard. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Neil Fox. And I've got to give him his doctorate because I use my doctor in my Twitter profile, which is Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. In case you want to follow me, Neil is a academic, a teacher, and a film writer, a screenplay writer. He is a working on a book currently for the BFI about uh, music films. He has uh, written several shorts and uh, and a feature, uh, It's Natural to be Afraid, in 2011, a uh, feature film, Wilderness 2017. And he's written a bunch of other stuff. He's been an associate producer working with Mark Jenkins on his latest film. And we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to cover a lot of that uh, ground. And we're also going to talk about the way screenwriters and writers generally are portrayed in movies so that's going to be a sort of broad theme of our conversation as well it was it was great fun talking to neil uh he's also got a podcast which i should uh i should plug the cinematologists which i've been uh following and listening to for some for some time now and uh it's brilliant it's really good in-depth analysis and yet it's also done really lightly and in a way that's very very listenable so uh you you might want to check that out if you don't already if you enjoy the episode please remember to like and subscribe and do all those other things which uh, continue to spread the word it's working so please keep it up if if you haven't done it already then what's wrong with you come on please come on but before you do any of that enjoy the conversation So yeah, I started. I kind of started screenwriting on a dare, really, at college, sort of at the sixth form college. I was yeah, sort of the the usual sort of opinionated seventeen, eighteen year old who was getting into movies and telling everyone that the movies that we were watching were terrible and and why they were terrible. And then and someone sort of literally sort of said, "You couldn't do any better." And 
I thought, well, I wonder if I could. And I didn't, that was not, that was when I stopped being really arrogant, but it was a kind of an honest question to myself. Like, you know, like, could I, could I do better? You know, like I, I am sort of being this kind of person who's saying, you know, this is bad and this is bad. And, but, but what am I doing to, to really understand that or, or, or kind of do anything about it? So I started to write this feature film when I was at sixth form college and you know like on a word document and it was at the time when you could sort of look at screenplays that were being released Tarantino's screenplays had been had been released and stuff and you know I managed to sort of find one in the library and so I just sort of copied the format and and started and quickly realized that I was in way over my head you know this was actually really hard um, <laughs> and my sort of my fledgling attempt was terrible I mean you know uh, I still have it somewhere it was called um it was called Darkness on the Edge of Town Ooh, is that oh, like a, the Springsteen? I was going to say, yeah, Bruce Springsteen reference. Yeah, it started a it started a tradition which I still have, which is stealing titles from songs. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of that. Hopefully, the the scripts have improved. But then around that time, I met um, someone in, in the year below me who was the brother of, uh, of, a, of a friend of mine. He was making sort of short films, but wasn't writing. And we sort of bonded over a love of fifties B movies. And I said, oh, I've just started writing. I I can write one. And he had this title called They Came for a Day, you know, sort of a Ray Harryhausen kind of Edward style. And so I wrote that and it was a sort of 20 page short, handwritten on, yeah, sort of a, on a legal pad. And I sort of handed it to him and said, you know, there you go. And he liked it and was like, well, maybe we should, maybe we should make this together, which we did sort of a few years later after we both took a diversion into starting a film festival in Luton, which is where I'm from, and then sort of starting a film company in Luton to yeah sort of do film festivals and make films and and we sort of stayed there for pretty much you know up until i moved to cornwall nine years ago doing all sorts which included making a number of short films so that's how it kind of started how do you find the sort of the discipline of of writing short short films in terms of it you know as you say you sort of try also also have done a feature so so what's is there a really big difference or or how, how is it for you i think there's a i do think there's a big difference I really like short films. I've always really liked short films as a as a form to to watch uh, and to program and and to make. I've always loved the freedom that they give. They seem to have more freedom than sort of narrative features, um, because they they sort of, they don't have the same expectations on them. You know, mm. so they're almost kind of sketches of of ideas or really kind of concise ideas that that wouldn't play if you then had to consider the things that that often have to go into sort of feature length films. So even though, yeah, I sort of made a feature in, in 2016, I've since, you know, made a short after that. And, and sort of, you know, there's a couple of other shorts that I'd really like to make, you know, and never saw them as a, as a stepping stone. And, and I love teaching them, you know, so I teach screenwriting and I love sort of trying to get students to think that you don't need to, you don't need to worry about all of those expectations that, that come from writing a feature. And I'm not, when I wrote my feature that, that we made, I didn't, I tried to really sort of not fall into those expectations and try to sort of push against them um but it's certainly easier with a short and there just seems to be yeah sort of a, a real purity to them that i i think is sort of underappreciated those expectations that's a that's an interesting sort of concept to to think about for a moment um because i was thinking about it the other day of how how there are certain sort of rules that we hear these days about feature film writing and stuff like likability of your main character yeah it's something that for a short you don't you it doesn't really matter if you like any of the characters because you don't have to spend that much time with them i guess yeah and also they're not really characters in the same way that they are in a longer work you know mm. they're often yeah sort of impressions of characters you know they maybe embody one or two elements that are you know sort of that you can sort of hook into for the duration um and or not you know it might just be a pure concept where the character is a is a cipher to to get through the narrative and you know that there's i think it's interesting that my students kind of are trying to make those kind of 10 minute shorts that i make them write as complex in terms of the characters as a as a feature you know mm. because i think that's the expectation and increasingly with with television you know that it is there's such an expectation that we know everything about these characters at all points we know their entire backstory their entire psychology you know, and I think it feels quite reductive, even in sort of narrative film, to to have to know everything about a character rather than sort of just spending time with them. 
um and certainly in shorts i i, I, I hate it when you sort of try and or when when you sort of see a, a short film which is essentially a, a 90 minute feature crammed into 10 or 20 minutes um it's like let 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 that form do its own thing mm. it's like writing a haiku or or you know or that sort of uh, what's that? Uh, there's a discipline in Japanese calligraphy where you don't take your your brush off the paper. You have to do everything in sort of one swift movement. You know, it's that sort of discipline. Yeah, that's a lovely way of thinking about it. Thinking about the the shorts as well that have sort of successfully been sort of transformed into feature films. I mean, I'm thinking of the most recent example I can think of is probably um, Whiplash. Um, yeah, the Damien. Chazelle. I mean, in a way, that might be sort of a dangerous um, example to give your students because that makes them, instead of doing a short film, they do a scene from a bigger film. Yep, and uh, most of them have seen that, so they love Chazelle, and they come in, you know, with that with that approach. And that that that's a long-standing approach, I think. You know, when I when I programmed a film festival, I would often see shorts that were a scene from, or a you know, almost like the first act. You know, you would get these sort of twenty-five minute or 30 minute films which have like the first third of a feature and it was essentially yeah like a a calling card to try and get the money to shoot the whole thing and Mm. I've never been a huge fan of that but I I can see the attraction you know I can see the attraction of saying look here's here's the story in a kind of capsule form here's the you know here's the sort of central conflict here's the what it's going to look like um and I think you know a short like Whiplash has enough tension in it to work as a short and i probably prefer the short to the the feature in many ways but um but i think that that you know that that it it can work and i think it often the you know that i think there's that film mama as well there's a you know which was a horror film for a few years which which was quite similar Mm. um you know i think you can really sort of cleverly capture what's going to be the feature and censor as well was was a good example because that was that the, the the they had a short called nasty didn't they as well which was again very different but sort of told you what the tone and the feeling and the kind of the overall theme of the the feature might be yeah censor censor sort of struck me as an uh, uh, when i was watching the film i've never seen the short nasty but while i was watching the film i was thinking this is a really good short that's been a little bit stretched out i didn't feel it quite sort of one one its right to exist as a as an a full-length feature film or maybe that's too harsh maybe it's it's it just didn't quite sustain it for me i guess yeah i know what you mean and i think that often that there's a those transitions can obviously involve a lot of people giving opinions about stuff and sometimes you can feel where what might have been you know kind of evocative or mysterious about a short is kind of really flattened out by a process where you know, things have to be kind of clearer or the, the lines have to be a bit more joined up, you know. I think, you know, you look at something like Saint Maud, which obviously is kind of similar similar time in terms of sort of release, but but you look at Rose Glass's shorts, which which are not directly linked, but certainly capture something that she was I think she was able to sort of maintain in that film and a, with a bit more control than 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 maybe you sort of see in Censor. Um mm. you know, and it's it's almost like yeah, they want they want to take the atmosphere and put a load of characters and, and you know, and a quote-unquote plot in it. But those things can often butt up against each other and not always in the best way. I think it's, I, I was talking to Paul Cronin uh, on one of these podcasts what, a while back, and uh, he, he teaches screenwriting as well. And he was saying how if his students give him the first five pages of a screenplay, uh, he always refuses to read them. He wants to read the last five pages. And he argues that the first five pages, you, you've told me you've got a situation, and only with the last five pages do you tell me if you've had a story as well. And I, I sort of wonder if that, that in, an, in a way, is one of the advantages of doing a short, is that you can do a situation. You don't necessarily need to do a, a story. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of my favourite shorts are a situation, you know. Mm. Um, and I think the thing is, when I've written shorts, that's what I've been interested in, you know, is, you know, the, the short I made before wilderness which is my feature which was called it's natural to be afraid which is Mm -hmm. another another song title that was very much you know i had this kind of almost this moment that i i conceived you know i thought oh this this would be an interesting moment um an interesting sort of setup by doing a short i i was able to kind of explore the kind of the, the the dynamics of the moment and then hint to you know who these people were that were involved with it you know and sort of we filled in a little bit about some of the kind of the context of you know the who how who they might be and emotionally when they meet 
but but that was mm. kind of it you know i was i was interested in the meeting rather than you know their entire backstory or even the legacy of what happens after these two people meet you know like that that didn't seem as interesting as exploring that 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 sequence where these two people who don't know each other are kind of thrown together in this what feels like or it's constructed like a fateful moment and it, it, it's that that was interesting you know um which might be a scene in a bigger film but often for me if 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 it's a, an event or something that inspires a a script it's usually going to be a short rather than if it's kind of uh, a character situation that i'm interested in exploring that's that's when a feature might emerge Mm. Yeah, which sort of brings us back in a, a little way to what you were mentioning earlier, which is how our culture has now become sort of uns- dissatisfied with just having a story that exists. And, and it sort of has to, you know, fill in all the, you know, I mean, imagine like in the 70s, you had a film like Marathon Man. If you had that film come out today, you would then have like a film about uh, what he was doing before he became Marathon Man, a spin-off <laughs> film about the, his brother beforehand, you know, an origin story of the baddie, uh, you know, there'd be so many. And then maybe a nostalgic sort of TV show about the making of Marathon Man as a, as a fictional thing. It, it just seems like, am I really interested in watching all of these sort of peripheral sort of filling ins and i know there are the exceptions that are good but i can the thing that makes luke skywalker interesting is that he's a guy who just lives in the desert and nobody knows who he is and to find out that okay actually he's this guy and he's done this and this and this happened 10 years before the actions that you see in star wars you know it just goes on and on and on where did i freeze a little then and one of the things about you know luke skywalker which i think is interesting as well is like it's that we you know and i've had this conversation many times with my students which is you know yeah we 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 don't really know anything about him at the start of the story and what we learn about him is 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 who he becomes by watching him do the thing you know Mm. so he's a bit of a brat he's a bit of a dreamer you know he's really annoying um at the start but that but but there's a sense that you know we're kind of in this deserted place with this individual so i kind of we're forced to focus you know in that kind of classic hitchcock way of making you unable to empathize or sympathize or engage with or with any other character and then so you're kind of on the journey with that character and i think it does work because what he learns about himself we learn about him at the same time because we're watching him become and there does seem to be a a a real shift at that that level of filmmaking i certainly don't want to make it seem like you know because i think that it is that that that's you know that's that's the space that defines the conversation and defines what people think is is good or bad for you know for for, be- for better or ill there does seem to be this kind of desire to to fill in the gaps of everything you know i think that's an interesting idea that marathon man you know <laughs> universe because you know you're probably giving people some 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 ideas this oh, yeah, actually you know that would be really good let's let's find out about it you know maybe they can hire john schlesinger's son to do a kind of nostalgic sort of sepia tinted you know sort of spin-off reboot 30 years later um but but that's the way of thinking it's like what what information can we provide you know that what certainty what what recognition and i know for me that's not the that's not the cinema i've enjoyed and it's not the cinema i like to write you know i I try and leave space and i like films that leave space for me you know i don't want to just come in and 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 tick a tick a load of boxes about something i want to I want to do something a bit deeper. Yeah, and I mean, the the, the problem is, and I'm going to start, start start sounding like a granddad type of figure now, is um, that the the actual sort of properties that they're remaking and redoing, it seems to have become so routine to do them that they're not even great properties. They're, you know, they're remake, they make a film about chips, they make a Dukes of Hazard, they, they've got TV shows of Hawaii Five O and Magnum PI, and it's just like. Like, these things were only okay when they were, you know, when they were first out. It's not like, um, you know, what is even the audience for this? Yeah, that's a good question. And and you know, I I, I certainly couldn't, I wouldn't presume to know what that audience is. It's certainly not an audience that I'm. I've got. <laughs> you know, they're not coming to watch my film. But uh, but yeah, I think it, it it it's hard to not sound kind of dispirited by the by the by the trend. And I thought it was interesting on your your chat with Kim Newman where he was talking about is it clayface in the marvel you know like there it's not as if 
it's not as if the 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 possibilities within the the, the material that they have the studios have at hand has been exhausted you know it's a very it's a very thin sort of stream of, of properties that they then keep going back to when there is more there so i'm i'm not sure that they really know who their audience is i think they've sort of they've tapped into one and they're gonna they're gonna bleed that audience dry until it doesn't work and then they'll try and figure something else out i was thinking about indiana jones and the last crusade the other day because that has in its sort of the the very first section with river phoenix it kind of has everything that's bad about today's television but it does it in a self-aware and um you, uh, an almost parodically accelerated fashion you know within five minutes you find out how he got his hat how he got his scar how he got his name how he got you know how he got his whip how he got his hat and it's just like what that happened in one morning you know uh when he and he apparently lives in monument valley yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of like so over the top i can forgive it but it seems like somebody was watching that with a pen and paper and was going oh okay that's how i'm gonna do the next 25 years of film and tv programming but that's but that's what we're talking about as well isn't it the int- the difference between a short and a feature like that's a short sequence that works really well in the context of you know a fun way to set up a character or to you know to sort of to step outside the character that you you've known for three films and and do a little bit of an orange story sort of tongue origin story tongue in cheek but yeah that that's now that's the whole franchises are built on that that sequence that stretched out to sometimes two and a half hours Mm. and it's like it just doesn't it's it doesn't need that you know and it's not necessarily that interesting um and spielberg probably kind of knew that (laughs) and you know i wonder if george lucas wanted to write a longer version and that's what they kind of argued it down to like let's do it in three shots <laughs> yeah um, which is cinema isn't it rather than rather than anything else well i mean they did do a young indiana jones um story that uh sorry tv show that, it was a tv um, show yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah which uh, i remember um vic armstrong the the viv armstrong vic armstrong the stuntman uh, directed a few episodes because oh, okay. I read his autobiography and he was very uh, uh, yeah he he was very proud of the work he had done on that. So to to sort of move on uh, to the idea of so you're 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 writing screenplays and everything. Uh, do you when you watch a movie and you see like a screenwriter depicted, do you sort of go ah there I am now I'm the now I'm the hero of this story. Yes, I feel very seen. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I think younger me did, you know, I think that seeing Barton Fink quite early was very much a, you know, probably an unhealthy attachment um, object to be like, you know, like, oh, actually there's, you know, it's an honourable, terrifying, kind of really unappreciated um, and ultimately destructive thing that I'm doing. And in your early 20s, you're like, yeah, this seems like <laughs> seems like something to pursue. I like that kind of romanticism the kind of the doomed romanticism of it, I think, is mm. is um, and I think, but but as I've kind of got older, I kind of realise what that is uh, sort of tapping into in terms of the history of screenwriters in Hollywood. But well, I, I guess kind of not necessarily the history of screenwriters in Hollywood, but but certainly screenwriters, you know, sort of post post sort of you know in New Hollywood and the sort of the rise of the auteur theory. You know, I think that they've always been at the bottom of the food chain, but. But certainly, sort of accounts of screenwriters in Hollywood in the sort of the classic era aren't all universally that they were put upon and unappreciated and you know kind of ignored. Um, that seems to have come in later as directors have have sort of taken more prominence. You know, whether that's widened the gap or just made writers feel like they don't get the same the same credit, sometimes literally the same credit. Is uh, yeah, tell you know, me about it. <laughs> you know, and I think that there are a number of films that kind of that really feed into that. Um, but there are also films that kind of push against it and, and have a sort of the screenwriters are a different kind of figure, particularly in the old in, in sort of classic Hollywood films. I think. I mean, I would, I, I, I agree with uh, when I first saw Barton Fink, I definitely had that sort of like, ah, there's, there, there's the writer, there's that's me, that that's the. But rewatching it recently, rewatched it last week, and I just thought, oh my god, it. it that's not the story at all. The story is this guy's a complete asshole who's basically got one idea that he keeps, that, and he just has no, 
receptivity to anybody else, you know, or any other idea. He's got one story. Every time he sort of starts typing, it's, you know, a tenement building in New York, the fish, fish hawkers cry echoes down the street. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like... He's an example of just what you don't do as a writer. It's not that Hollywood's, you know, Hollywood isn't the baddie in that in that film. It's it's kind of, um, yeah, it's it's kind of the writers are, are kind of old damaged individuals who just can't do their jobs. And that's something that sort of comes up again and again. It sort of changes with adaptation, I think. Um, hmm. You know. The, the the brilliant Charlie Kaufman for where he's obviously he's his own enemy in a really kind of direct way and he does have a kind of very ambivalent relationship to 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 Hollywood and to the industry but it's kind of the idea of the industry more than it's the actual reality of it you know he just he can't get on with you know the way that the stories have historically been formulated and that sort of wears him down and ultimately you know he kind of gives into it in such a beautiful way um yeah i think it's interesting to look at something like barton fink and then look at hail caesar and see how the sort of the 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 the, the film characters the characters in the film industry are sort of positioned in those films i think yeah like barton is very much a kind of railing against the the system which might be because the system's corrupt or it might be because yeah like you say he's he's not as good as he thinks um mm. he is, which i think is a very common feeling for a lot of writers um of any kind of you know medium it's like that that kind of so what do you do Well, you lash out and you say that you know i'm not appreciated and i'm a genius who's not understood um which is easier than admitting that you're kind of mediocre and you shouldn't be doing it i think yeah yeah it's and i mean it's that idea of like i i'm writing you know a theater for the people a film films for the people and then the guy who lives next door who keeps saying you know i could tell you some stories and he's just like He's too busy spouting off to to actually stop and listen to the guy who turns out, by the way, to be you know, spoiler alert, um, a, a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what I mean it, it goes back to that idea of the audience as well, doesn't it? You know, like the, who is the audience? Well, the, you know, historically the audience has has not has not always veered, and certainly not in huge numbers, towards you know the the work that often maybe screenwriters think that they should you know i think there is a kind of snobbery in in a lot of filmmaking and it obviously you know it kind of starts with the script that this is going to be you know eat your vegetables kind of uh jimmy Fa is it jimmy fallon who said that um, uh trevor and, noah um, trevor noah no trevor noah you know like that i think i think that again like a lot of the time people don't like you know their the reality of what they kind of they know their life is being exposed to them and i think that a lot of films about screenwriters sort of tap into that kind of neuroses of wanting to do something honorable but knowing that really you know that there are other things at play including you know just wanting to be famous or wanting to be successful or wanting to be seen to be good you know and all of those kind of competing voices um sort of can infect the process of writing quite a lot i think i think that often the portrayals of screenwriters in sort of classic hollywood have not always done the best job of sort of making it something which feels glamorous or you know of, of value and obviously kind of sunset boulevard is the the great example where he's essentially you know babysitting <laughs> you mm. know um you know he can't get the work he's not doing very well he's kind of doing bits and pieces but he's essentially kind of babysitting and, and not even babysitting a star babysitting kind of star who's no longer you know so even if that's not you know even if that's just a job that they picked the, the the work it does in sort of making screenwriters feel feel valued is is quite significant because it's such a significant film i think you know um and that's always in people's minds that oh yeah that a writer is essentially expendable and and, and can be shunted off to to do all this other sort of menial stuff rather than doing the serious work of art that that it sits at the core of the movies when i was uh recording the first ever episode of um of the podcast or maybe the second I, I wanted to put together like a series of little clips about, um, you know, about writers as a sort of intro, like like to go with the music and everything at the beginning. And the one that I got that I really loved, and I I, I'm, I should still, I should use it, but it's um, Geisler, Geisler from uh, Barton Fink. Geisler. Yes, Mr. Geisler, Geisler! <laughs> and he, uh, and when he says, uh, writers Fink, you know, talk to a writer, this is Hollywood. Uh, throw a rock, you'll hit one. And do me a favor, Fink. Throw it hard. 
Tony Shalhoub's amazing. Oh, just like he's in that movie for two seconds and he, he just rules it completely. He pretty much rules everything he turns up in. I love Tony Shalhoub so yeah, much. Yeah, big, big Night is one of my favourite favorite films ever, I think. It's such the scene where they make the frittata at the end, which is an entirely, you know, dialogueless scene that would be you know but many people would say that that's not screenwriting because there's no dialogue though people would they'd be like oh that's not that's just kind of improvised or it's you know even though it's obviously a very important scene that the the film doesn't work without you know it doesn't work without that kind of quiet sort of real-time coda i don't think there's no way that wasn't written there's Mm. no way that wasn't written that you know i mean like everything gets written in the end i mean you might not it might not be uh sort of written in the very first draft but you know even like kung fu fights somebody sits down and writes them out and works out what they're gonna do ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yeah, and, I, and I've been fortunate, you know, with, with, with my collaborator and... and and sort of been on sets with where, where screenwriters have been included in that, you know, because they carry the story, you know, they carry mm-hmm. it all. And I think often, you know, often when you sort of see that a director has run off and thinks that they know and they hit those moments, often the story can fall apart because the person who's really carrying the, the permutations of what it can be in their head has been excluded from the process, which as a producer as well, I always feel is 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 kind of mad. Why would you not want someone who can solve those problems or add something in the way that actors do all the time while the film is being made. I often think the 90% of the job of a writer is sometimes to answer really basic questions like, wait a minute, what are they doing in that room? Why is that? Oh, why would they come back? Or what's the, you know, and, and it's, it's those stupid, sometimes stupid questions, which are absolutely, absolutely basic and, and fundamental. Yeah, the logic of things is really important sometimes. To broaden it out a little bit, you mentioned Sunset Boulevard earlier. And, uh, you know, he's kind of, you say babysitting, but isn't he kind of a prostitute? Isn't that, the, <laughs> uh, isn't that his job, essentially? Isn't he just there to basically be eye candy and, and slash or service, um, you know, Gloria Swanson's fading matinee idol yeah i was trying to you know retain a little bit of dignity in the profession of the writer there john but you just (laughs) blown that out of the water i'm not sure if i prefer to be a prostitute or a babysitter today there's not much there's not much of a but i was thinking of breakfast at tiffany's and george papard's character in that he's basically sort of a truman capote um stand in but he's 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 figured as a gigolo he's you know i mean you know holly go lightly is is the prostitute but also so is uh i can't remember his name but so is the writer and the narrator of breakfast at tiffany paul paul varick i've Mm, remembered his name well i think i think again that maybe is one of the insecurities that that writers have you know that that the process of writing regardless is a is one of constant compromise or you know sort of paying lip service or doing something that you feel is kind of taking away the kind of the purity of the thing and that i think probably seeps out in a lot of ways in terms of these representations that that they they feel it certainly happens in adaptation you know he just just feels kind of dirty doing the thing but he's compelled to do it anyway you know it's a there's certainly a sense that there is a there's a kind of darkness that lurks within the writer as in terms of what they're doing and why they're doing it um which i think the film industry is such a great way of of exploring that because it's it's just seen as innately seedy and kind of and shallow and sort of out for out for the bucks and occasionally getting hit by rocks thrown by <laughs> mr geisler, geisler! Uh, and, um, who, who would you say are your favorite 
screenwriters that you that you sort of almost treat like a director in the sense that I'll go and see a film by that writer. Well, Charlie Kaufman is probably the obvious one. Did you um, read his Did you read his novel? I haven't. It's sat there. It's literally sat by the bed, keeping the house up because it's it's giant. But no, that that came out while I've been working on my own book, so it just felt like that was just too much of a of sort of a distraction. But I, I, I do want to, and I'm very curious as to what what his writing on the you know sort of his novelistic writing is like compared to his screenwriting yeah he you know and i think that's probably a lot to do with kind of my age sort of seeing being john malkovich at a kind of a young age and just and again sort of giving he just gave a whole a whole new well it's a weird one isn't it because he gave a whole new sense of like the dignity of writing and sort of the art and genius of screenwriting in a way that that you could really see how it was his imagination that was coming up with that stuff and his ability to not just have the ideas but to deliver them in such interesting and intricate ways i think is 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 is, is amazing but of course he was not happy with that and wanted to direct which i completely understand but also kind of made a this kind of symbolic unattainable thing you know where it's like there he is only there is only one there mm. is only a, one of him i think you know historically it's billy wilder either working with uh il diamond particularly sort of in the late stuff i love that relationship or charles brackett in the early days i think he was a great writer weirdly you know even though i don't direct i think that some of my some of my favorite writers are directors who seem to be able to write really really well which would be wilder or or more recently like Paul Thomas Anderson I think is a great great writer and yeah th- th- those are probably my sort of my my favorites in terms of the ones whose whose work I go to when I'm kind of teaching what you might call classic narrative screenwriting I always think of people who are sort of writer directors like cut the Coens and Tarantino as well to some degree uh, and sort of I've read their screenplays but I always read them with an idea of they know they can do this they know that they're, they're they've, they've not got to give this to somebody who's yeah. then gonna say this isn't gonna work or so so it, in an ele- it, there's an element of it where I think there's not much I can learn here because they have a really big advantage and what's interesting about that is if you could the, the what's to learn because I, when, when I say to my students if they're interested in those filmmakers is not necessarily the Coens they're quite but someone like Tarantino or they love Wes Anderson or, or, or you know like look at how those screenplays have evolved over the course of their career Wes Anderson the fascist <laughs> oh, isn't everyone a fascist now apparently is he a fascist now I haven't I was... oh there was there was this oh there was this silly uh, I mean it's silly there was um I mean I went to university in the early 90s and if you didn't call someone fascist every day you sort of lost your card so I, I'm a little bit more tolerant than some people seem to be but basically uh, there was a somebody on Twitter who said that his films are fashoid <laughs> sort of had this word that and people were saying how dare you accuse him of being a member of the nazi party and i sort of thought both things were equally ridiculous that like no the person is sort of reacting to wes anderson's sort of you know kind of gnawingly irritating quirkability and yeah apolitis apoliticalness which seems to be always putting our sympathies with very rich white men who uh, coast around tool around third world countries and without any scratches appearing on their you know self-regard so you know I, I, I as you can tell i'm slightly ambivalent about wes anderson as well but anyway no he's not a fascist that let's okay sorry. for the record yeah what a relief i haven't been i haven't been on twitter today so i didn't know if i'd missed big news yeah um <laughs> that he'd held a rally or something and... <laughs> a torch could you imagine i mean it, actually you know the aesthetics the lateral panning of triumph of the will would be uh, right up his alley yeah well yeah i think there's certainly a kind of uh, an aesthetic formalism there that he you might appreciate going back to where i where i rudely interrupted you uh well now i can't teach it without without knowing that yeah but what's interesting about that is the the earlier screenplays are geared towards you know someone might see this you know a funder Mm. or you know someone we have to convince you know but then as they as as they as they get to the point where that it's kind of set, the screenplays change as, as documents and they become much more about the, the thing that they know they're going to make and this is exactly how they're going to do it, you know. Um, so they're, they're kind of, the early ones are kind of nice reminders that whatever you look, whatever, you know, whatever happens to filmmakers, often they, a lot of them start in similar places in terms mm. of having to have a document that looks a certain way to, to do a certain thing, apart from Shane Black's Lethal Weapon script, which I don't know if you've ever read the original one that got sold for like a million dollars, but it's available online and it's absolutely glorious because it doesn't look anything like a screenplay and it's got nothing to do with the film that you kind of see but it's so beautifully written and it's so engaging and exciting and that's that's the kind of again like a Kaufman-esque thing where it's like this this happened once someone wrote this thing sold it for a million dollars and then everyone thought great this is what I'll do and of course 
they couldn't because they weren't Shane Black. Lesson number one of the screenwriting course this, today is going to be be born as a famous screenwriter. Always helps, I find. Yeah, be, be Francis Ford Coppola's daughter and you'll be fine. Um, I mean, yeah, that's... That that uh, Bruce Robinson's screenplay for Withnail and I, I think, is another sterling example of mm. that. Where where the, everything in that screenplay, the stage directions, the scene setting, everything is perfect, yeah. and he kind of films it word for word as well. He's not um, no no messing about with improvisation for he. If you're looking at lessons that you can learn from from screenwriting, I, I often f- or, or from reading screenplays, sorry. I found it really instructive when I was look when I look at some screenplays like um, like from Blade Runner, for instance, where what you because obviously that film is so much about the director's vision and about the the, the Sid Mead and his visual uh, you know his, his uh, suggestions as a futurist that getting to the to the the screenplay and looking at that it, it's it's a really bare it feels like a very bare skeleton in comparison and that's kind of the conventional wisdom is that's what it is it's the it's the blueprint it's the yeah it's the scaffolding it's the skeleton that 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 becomes the thing and as a screenwriter i i like to think they're a bit more than that but i certainly you know i i do think that what's on the page should be the start and it should be a really kind of it should contain everything that you need to know to make the thing work you know not to necessarily you know i i don't like writing directions on the page i've got a really good director i work with he's better than that you know he's also a really good dp you know i'm not a dp i don't really think visually so why would i write this is the way the camera moves i have no idea how the, how the camera should move but i know that these things happen to have to happen in this scene for it to work and i hope that my word choice which is what i think screenplays are really important tools for is like you know is is kind of is is creating the the seed in the collaborator's head of of how to do the thing that is going to bring it bring it out you know barry jenkins screenplay for moonlight's a great example i mean okay he 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 shot well he, he directed that himself but the word choice on the page you know you can tell how the music's responded to those characters you can tell how the you know james laxton has has been able to kind of you know create these images because it, it's there in the words that are describing the place and the people and the action it's all and and that's where i think screenwriting is is really valuable it's not just this happened and this happened and this happened it's 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 it's, it's, it's between that and just describing everything like you like you would in a novel and i think that's where the art is as well is is how do you make it a document that becomes a film but also mm a compelling story that, that kind of gets collaborators excited, that gets actors interested in, you know, this feels a bit messy or a bit nuanced or, you know, I can play around in this space because you're saying this here and you're saying this here, you know, and it's just be those good collaborators who can, who know that that's intentional and, and can sort of play around in that space, I think is key. And that's the only time you, when you're, you're writing, you really get to write because mm. a lot of it is formatting and a lot of that, a lot of it is trying to be clear for production and that's quite boring so where's the space to actually to do the job and if you're like me you're a writer who doesn't direct that that's even more limited you think that a lot of writers who end up directing don't have to worry about that because they, mm. they'll bring all of that flair and imagination to the to bear in other ways i always try to think of it as like a mood board that everyone talks about mood boards as as this sort of big thing of presenting something presenting a document which will give and i think well what if you should really be doing that in the script as well. I mean, yes, I I, I, repre- I totally understand the efficacy of those things when you're trying to get financing for a project and everything. But that same sort of intentness of like, I really want to evoke something should be in the script, the original script. That's really interesting, the, the, the mood board idea, because um, I teach filmmaking and students make mood boards all the time. But you can tell the difference between a mood board where a student has thought about the the depth of the story that they want to tell and knows the work that they're trying to sort of tap into and evoke and you know and students who just put you know blue scenes from films in google image search and then taken all of those films and put them in a mood board and so you've got bergman next to nolan and you're like mm, i don't how's this going to work so but 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 and, I, and again i think that's the same thing it's like it should be on the page and and i think you know that at the end of when you write a script whether you've done enough 
to, to to do that or whether you are just yeah sort of scrabbling around and hoping that hoping that it makes sense or that it works how do you see the film that you're writing i mean do you uh, i hear a lot of people sort of uh, or read a lot of interviews with people and they're sort of saying he'd shot it in his head already he had it in you know especially writers obvious uh, sorry especially directors obviously but as a writer i always find it i'm i'm always looking where to put my foot next so i i find it difficult to think of it in a in a much broad way and i, I certainly don't have the film in my head yeah no i have i have a a film in my head it's probably not a very good one um (laughs) when i'm you know (laughs) he says about yeah the film the film as it's finished is hopefully better but yeah i think that you know like i i have a kind of a sense of the movements and a sense of the 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 place and the how the characters might move around a scene in order to try and get the emotional beats talking about process is always really hard without sounding ridiculous and saying things like emotional beats but i'll do my best men in tights (laughs) (laughs) how hard can it be (laughs) thank you for bringing me back to earth john i appreciate it but yeah so and an example in the feature that we made you know the opening sequence i I, I could i I saw the opening sequence in my head really Mm. clearly you know and almost to the points where i wrote it as cuts which i very rarely do but that it was that's how it sort of came so I was like, that's how I'm going to write it. That's how I sort of, that's how I see it opening the film. And then gave it to my collaborator and we were both producers. And he sort of said, he's sort of, the first thing he looked at was like, this is expensive opening. And I was like, yeah, don't, I don't think this is how it should open necessarily. Like this is, but, but this is how it came in, in my head. And I know it's expensive because all of it was set dialogue in a moving car, which for a micro budget film is, is a, is a sort of a big, a big no, no in terms of, in terms of cost. So I said like, I'm, uh, even though it looks like it's very prescriptive, I'm not I don't I'm not tied to this being how it's filmed it's just this is how it needed to be written in order for me to get it on the page and he didn't shoot it like that at all you know it's mm. very very different opening in, in, in wilderness but the feeling was the same like it, it captured something of, of what I'd written in terms of the the dynamics of this relationship at the start of the film and how it was kind of setting the tone that would then be um, sort of dismantled as the film went on you know and I think that so that happens quite a lot where I'm I sort of see a scene in order to write it and then in the process of making the film that it's improved you know or it's changed you know so or, or or I'll be told actually we don't need to film this or what if we filmed it like this and it's like oh actually that that's kind of what the scene is about but if I'd have tried to write the visual story in a more elaborate way I might not have left what it's really about in order for a director to be able to do that so I'm quite conscious of that that again I, I, I'm, I'm interested in the characters and I'm interested in the dynamics and I'm interested in the story as I see it rather than oh this is how it's got to look you know that's not I'm not really interested in that and I like the process of watching it happen you know I like the I like working with actors and I like seeing I like seeing it being directed or seeing a DP kind of I'm like wow I would not have thought to shoot it like that and I'm kind of I'm kind of amazed that they could they that's what they saw in the script you know they they think oh this is a way of doing that I, I like that because more than anything I like filmmaking you know I like mm. watching filmmakers work which I, I get a big thrill out of I, I mean I think to to do this you have to sort of be able to do something which is paradoxical which is take your ego out of the equation but at the same time not 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 do that to the point that you're just being rolled over completely you know and that's the the sweet point between those two things is incredible you know it's like yoga but not a slug you know something (laughs) something along those lines yeah for sure and i think that you know that that's a difficult position for screenwriters historically where the knowledge that it is the you know they, they generally generate the story or at least the storytelling in the sort of classic Hollywood studio system, they would they would they come up with that, but then they have to leave it behind, and it goes off, and they, they're not not usually part of it. I think that's quite difficult. And indie film changed that in in you know in many ways, in in, in sort of in, in good ways, but but it's still a difficult thing. And it's still how do you how do you sort of marry those two things, knowing that you are responsible for the, the sort of the nucleus of it, but also that ultimately once you're finished your job, there's so many stages for it to become a thing that you're kind of unless you're a producer is you're not really part of and then when you see the film at the end it's 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 so far away from where you were that it's hard to it's hard to sort of reconcile what you've actually done in the first place yeah it's like last year's fingernails you know they once belonged (laughs) to you but no more you know what about i mean one of the things that i think is hardest as a as a as a screenwriter specifically as opposed to any other kind of writer and to compare it to other kinds of writers such as novelists who sort of perhaps have more cultural cachet is the idea that uh, any major novelist who is gonna you know their stuff is 
all going to be published. I mean, it, it, especially if they reach a certain level of success, even their juvenilia is going to be to some extent archived and poured over and attended to. Maybe not published as, uh, specifically, but even then maybe absolutely early stories by uh, Raymond Carver or, or whoever will get, a, will get an outing. Whereas screenwriters... Even you look at IMDb and you look at like best screenwriters, you know, the, the Robert Towns and the William, you know, the Ch Ch Chaveskis and the, and they have a, they have like a handful of films credits, you know, they have like 10, 15, maybe 20, but they're vastly fewer than, than what they've produced in their lifetime, what they've actually written. I mean, how, how do you deal with that? Really? I think that's a really hard thing, isn't it? You know, I think, and again, it comes back to the fact that if, if you're a poet or even a novelist or, it's, you know, increasingly, certainly the thing that you write can be released into the world at the time that it's finished. You write a novel, you could self-publish it, and it would be the novel that you've written. But screen screenwriters have never had that. You know, like, you write the screenplay. And I say this to my students because, you know, when I try and puncture the bubble, like, no one, when they get to the airport, says, oh, they've got the latest unpublished Robert Town. I'm going to pick that up for the beach. People don't read screenplays for, for fun, apart from people who are trying to learn more about screenplays you know they they're not a, they're not a they're not a piece of writing that exists on its own terms unless like unless like you say that the film has been made and then people want to people want to kind of go back in and that's that's hard to know that writing the thing is is no guarantee that people are ever going to know that this thing exists and yeah that more than probably like yeah kind of other types of writing i think that the percentage of work that if you're actually a working screenwriter i think that's the difference as well like you say a lot of you know, if, if you become a novelist who's published, the chances are, unless it's a complete disaster, that the next, you know, if you can maintain a, a pretty, even a pretty a pretty broad spectrum, a kind of a, a consistent streak, your work will be released. There's no guarantee as a screenwriter that even if you have one hit that, or you have one film that's made, that the next one is going to get made and so many are written and never made or taken away from you and, and rewritten. You know, it's a, it's a very precarious profession and i think that eats away at, at at screenwriters i think that's why many even the screenwriters you mentioned there like paddy chayefsky was not a screenwriter by trade he did other forms of writing you know and why so many why there are so many writer directors you know particularly sort of post hollywood system in in america and and sort of internationally why so many auteurs wrote and directed their own their own work and continue to do so because it's 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 yeah it's more control over the thing that you've got, but um, it's also another job. It's it's uh, you, you've got the the benefit of being able to to do the other thing, and, and I think it's it also is kind of it's one of the things that is in representations of screenwriters that fear that mm. this is make or break, and why so much of Hollywood films about screenwriters are about compromise. About mm. I just I, I want to I want to get something made, and I want to be in this world, and you know I know I might be selling my soul, but you know, the reality is that you know if you don't, then you might not get another bite of that cherry. I was reading about Michael Cimino of the Charles Eldon uh, book, who, again, he, he came on the podcast to talk about it. And there's this description of um, Cimino has a room that's just absolutely jam-packed with screenplays that he's written over the 10, 20 years that he's been out in the wilderness. And I, I've come across that so many times that, you know, the screenplays that the Terence Malick has written from the 1970s on, and there's the screen plays that um that people have worked on and you know big famous people and i sort of occurred to me well why doesn't anyone you know when these guys die and you know this stuff might become available or whatever why don't they ever just sort of like oh well we'll take the screenplay by such and such and it's just like that would happen with a novel you know somebody would charles dickens dies he leaves a manuscript behind mystery of edwin drood that where it's a half a novel don't care we're publishing it but with screenwriters and even directors writers directors the minute you're dead your stuff is worthless because if mm. nobody is put pushing it uh, then then nobody is is doing it i mean unless i i can't think of an example of someone who's sort of like made a film out of it I, i'm sure there have been two or three that's made a film out of a sort of a dead person's work you know screen screenplay well the most famous one is uh, ai isn't it the spielberg oh, and Kubrick. yeah good good shout but again that's interesting because people didn't know what they were watching <laughs> were they watching a kubrick film or were they watching a spielberg film or a mix of both and what was what was whose you know and again i think that comes back to the fact that that people know that regardless of what's in the screenplay that transition to film is and a look at something that was edited like um the other side of the wind you know that was fit you know because mm. i know what what of this is is wells's script and vision and and what is 
an attempt to try and honor that and what is an attempt to just do something else entirely like i think it's it's complicated because of what screenplays are but i think I like AI because I like I like the fact that it's I mean I like messy films anyway so so but but I like the fact that it you can see a filmmaker with a very different sensibility trying to honor someone else and and also try and not just present what was maybe on the page and not just assume oh this is what Stanley would have wanted but but to try and have fun with it and it is you know it's kind of tonally messy but I don't think that's a bad thing I think that it's interesting because of that and I think that some of the ways that and what was surprising about that was when it, it sort of came out that people thought oh this is this is definitely a Spielberg thing because it's got a kid looking melancholy and then the sort of going back to the source it was like oh no that was Kubrick that bit was and that was interesting I thought that there was people tried to read it in terms of who did what and it wasn't it wasn't clear which I think that film was probably due a, a reevaluation with that distance now in terms of seeing it for what it is i always am surprised at how much spielberg gets sort of tagged with the old sentimentality stuff and everything you know he can be a gross sentimentalist no, no doubt about it but he always strikes me as a very cruel filmmaker you know i don't think anyone could have made jaws who didn't sort of to some degree savor the fact that some of these people are going to get chomped up yeah there's definitely a, a, a kind of a, a balance of sort of fear and loathing in the with that with that sweetness but even in something like et I think it's right in there. Listen, Neil, before our Zoom meeting is unceremoniously hacked off, I want to ask you for your recommended film book. What, what would you recommend for our listeners? Well, I'm going to pick two because everyone does, but one from a sort of filmmaking screenwriting hat, which is one of your previous guests, actually, Paul Cronin's Lessons with Kira Starmi. I mean, Kira Starmi is, Kira Starmi is one of my favourite filmmakers. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, just great and you know just yeah and a beautiful yeah just a beautiful storyteller a reminder of what you can do when you're not bound to a very narrow sort of set of expectations of what a story is and how it can unfold but that book is just full of full of Kiristami talking about cinema and art and life and how they all sort of fit together and I've just I just massively have defaced it with underlinings and it's almost become a you know, a kind of a book that I go to a lot to remind myself of the kind of stories I want to tell, the kind of teacher I want to be, the kind of person I want to be. You know, I think it's, it's got such wisdom and, and sort of gentleness and joy in it. I just I find it absolutely inspiring, you know, and any time I'm thinking, oh, God, like there's there's no hope for cinema. I kind of go back to that and think, actually, there are filmmakers and that have made beautiful work that sits outside expectation. And yeah, so that would be and it's really short and it's definitely edited to allow Kiristami's voice to shine through I think it's it's fab um mm. I like all I love all of his books I Cronin's edited books I think are, are wonderful the other one sort of with my sort of film critic head on because I do a bit of that as well is uh Noriko Smiling by Adam Mars Jones mm. I don't know if you know this book no I don't know um you should definitely get Adam Mars Jones on he's a, he's a he was a critic for newspaper for a long time and he writes for sort of the LRB and he's a novelist as well but he wrote this book about uh, the, the uh, LRB that's where I've recognized the yeah. name from yeah yeah he wrote this great close reading of Ozu's Late Spring called Noriko Smiling. Um, and it's a very short but really, really wonderful analysis. It, you know, kind of starts in that position of why am I why am I interested in this work? Why why, why does this film do, you know, he's kind of trying to unpack his own relationship to the film and, and really trying to get under the bonnet of what the film's doing. It's a beautiful piece of writing. And yeah, just he's got a really interesting sensibility. He's got such a confidence that he's not interested in He's not worrying about what how other people view this film or how they how they view Ozu or how they view Japanese cinema, and he just kind of goes in with his own sensibility and sort of wrestles with it. It's a really it's a wonderful book. That sounds yeah. amazing. I, I definitely, that's going on the pile, going on the, going on the ever growing pile. <laughs> uh, listen, Neil, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to talk to me. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me. I love your pod. Writers come and go. We always need Indians. So that was me and Neil talking about writers and writing with the help of Tony Shalhoub, which I've dropped a couple of clips into the podcast so you understand who we're talking about. And uh, he does a much better impression of Tony Shalhoub than I do. Tony Shalhoub does, I mean. Also, I should rectify that I uh, talked about the cinematologists right at the beginning of the pod. I should also mention that uh, Neil's co-host is Dario Linares, who I have uh, frequently interacted with um on twitter and uh, i've read his stuff with great interest as well so uh, a shout out there 
uh, to him. Uh, I will be dropping a bonus episode later the week uh, from Cannes, where I got the opportunity to talk to some queritics and ask them about their favourite uh, recommended film books. And so that will be a slightly shorter mixed bag of interviews uh, later on this week. But I had some really good conversations, and you also get a little bit of a flavour of Cannes, the film festival, uh, from the tired journalists and writers who are there suffering under the son of the Cote d'Azur. It is it's like Vietnam. You can't you can't really you can't really even understand unless you were there. Um Okay, that's enough from me. Thanks Ali Howard. Thanks Eric <laughs> Eric, thanks Elliot Atkins for the music. Ali Howard for the art. See you next week. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.